0: Welcome to the Thinking to Believe podcast. My name is Jason Dooley, and this is a place where thinking is believing. And lately, we've been thinking a lot about the Kalam cosmological argument. We've already examined the evidence for premise one, that anything which begins to exist requires a cause, and then spent the last couple of episodes looking at objections to that premise. So far, we've gotten through five of the objections out of 10 total. I'm hoping to get through the remaining five in this episode, but given the amount of content I have, I'm not very hopeful that'll happen unless this podcast episode goes on for quite a long time. So I'll do my best to get through what I can and whatever I can't, we will look at in the next episode. So let's look at objection number six to premise one of the Kalam argument. And a lot of these objections we'll probably get to today, if not all of them, will relate to quantum mechanics. So objection number six would say quantum mechanics demonstrates that things can come into being uncaused. Virtual particles come into being without cause. So this is an appeal to quantum mechanics, and specifically an appeal to virtual particles saying, well, they come into being without a cause, therefore the idea that everything has to have a cause is false, and that would follow then that it's possible the universe itself did not have a cause. There are multiple problems with this objection. Number one, it assumes an indeterministic interpretation of quantum mechanics. Now, quantum mechanics is a very weird science. <laughs> um a lot of math and obviously I can't get into all the details of what quantum mechanics entails and to be honest I wouldn't even claim that I fully understand it all. I've read an entire book on quantum mechanics and even after reading the book it's it's still a very confusing thing. In fact one I forget who it was who said about quantum mechanics. But they said anybody who th- who thinks that they understand quantum me- quantum mechanics doesn't fully understand quantum mechanics. Something along that, that line. Uh, but there are uh, in quantum mechanics there there is various mathematical foundations. There are equations that make up quantum mechanics, but it's not clear how to interpret the physical implications of those equations for our world. Some interpretations are entirely deterministic, where every effect has a prior cause. Uh, David Bone would be an example of that. So we have here Tim Maudlin. He notes, he says, the problem is that quantum mechanics was developed as a mathematical tool. Physicists understood how to use it as a tool for making predictions, but without an agreement or understanding about what it was telling us about the physical world. And that's very clear when you look at any of the foundational discussions. This is what Einstein was upset about. This is what Schrodinger was upset about. Quantum mechanics was merely a calculational technique that was not well understood as a physical theory. So it helped people to uh, predict you know, the location of a photon or something like that at a point of measurement, but it doesn't tell you how we should understand the implications of the theory for the physical world. Some, like I said, interpretations are fully deterministic, some are indeterministic, and there's no uh, physical evidence that conclusively proves which one of these interpretations are correct. And I'm not sure if I noted, but there's actually 10 different physical interpretations of that mathematical core. And all of them are possible interpretations. So this argument has to assume specifically an indeterministic interpretation of quantum mechanics. And that's not clear that that's true. Second problem is that this would only exacerbate the problem. So let's assume that the indeterministic interpretation of quantum mechanics is valid, often called the Copenhagen interpretation. And so the virtual particle pair production turns out to be true. That could potentially count against the first premise of the Kalam argument, but it would do nothing to solve the logical question of how a universe could come into being completely uncaused from nothing. If virtual particles come into existence and there is no cause for that, okay, fine. But that is nothing; doesn't do anything to solve the problem of how it's possible for a universe to come into being uncaused from nothing. I mean, after all, pointing the trillions of other examples where something comes into being from nothing doesn't explain how the universe does so or how it's intelligible to think that this is possible. Thinking you've solved one problem by pointing to the existence of innumerable instances of that same inexplicable problem doesn't actually get you any closer to solving the problem. It only prove that the problem is worse than it was originally conceived because now we don't just have one example, but you would have trillions upon trillions of examples. So pointing to virtual particles doesn't explain how something can come from nothing. At best, it just demonstrates how ubiquitous and intractable the problem of creation ex nihilo would be for science to explain. But I wouldn't even want to grant this ground to the objector, because I don't think that it's scientifically accurate to say that virtual particles are examples of something coming into being from nothing and examples of things that are uncaused. I don't even think it's possible for a scientist to affirm that virtual particle pair production has no cause. So let me start with the the first claim. There's two claims here. First is that it's not accurate to say that they come into being from nothing. And second, it's not even possible for a scientist to affirm that virtual particles have no cause. So let's look at the first uh, issue here. Is it scientifically accurate to say virtual particles come into being from nothing? No. Virtual particles come into being within something called the quantum vacuum, which is not nothing. Even Alexander Vilenkin writes A vacuum is ordinarily thought of as empty space. But according to modern particle physics, what is empty is not nothing. The vacuum is a physical object endowed with energy, density, and pressure. It can be in a number of different states or vacua. The properties and types of elementary particles differ from one vacuum to another. German philosopher of science, Bernulf, if I can pronounce his last name, Kenneth Schneider, uh, he describes the creation of quantum particles as, quote, a causal process leading from a primordial substratum with a rich physical structure to a materialized substratum of the vacuum. Admittedly, this process is not deterministic. It includes that weak kind of causal dependence, peculiar to every quantum mechanical process, end quote. So v- virtual particle pair production is not the creation of something out of nothing. It's something coming from something else. It's really a conversion of energy into matter. That's all it really is. William Lane Craig writes, quote, Now, in fact, particle pair production furnishes no analogy for this radical ex nihilo becoming. This quantum phenomenon, even if an exception to the principle that every event has a cause, provides no analogy to something's coming into being out of nothing. Though physicists speak of this as particle pair creation and annihilation, such terms are philosophically misleading, for all that actually occurs is a conversion of energy into matter or vice versa. As Paul Davies admits, the process described here do not represent the creation of matter out of nothing, but the conversion of pre-existing energy into material form. We still have to account for where the energy came from in the first place, This surely requires a supernatural explanation. Again, William Lane Craig writes about this issue. He says, Virtual particles do not come into existence uncaused from nothing. They are caused by the quantum vacuum, which is not nothing. So saying virtual particles pop into being uncaused from nothing is simply inaccurate. Lastly, it would appear that such an objection is also question-begging. For since the quantum vacuum is not nothing, it being rather an active sea of fluctuating energy that is subject to physical and natural laws, the question of where the vacuum came from can always be asked, and so postulating such an entity merely pushes the issue of creation back further. So it's simply not true that virtual particles pop into existence from nothing, they are coming into existence from the quantum vacuum as energy is briefly converted into material form and then they instantly annihilate and go back into their energy form. Stephen Barr, I think, provides a helpful analogy to understand what this quantum vacuum is like. He says the quantum of vacuum is analogous to an empty bank account. He says even a bank account with $0 in it is not nothing. The account itself exists, the bank that houses the account exists, and the account carries within it a potential for there to be money, for money to emerge within it, if you will. So the money is like the matter. You know, there may be no matter that is within the quantum vacuum, but there is energy in the quantum vacuum that can be converted into matter. So there is the potential for matter. So there's not an example of something coming into being from nothing. Rather, virtual particles are examples of something coming into being from something else. So now that we've established that there is a material cause to virtual particles, what about the second claim that these particles come into being uncaused? You could say, well, even if they do come from somewhere else, and there is something coming from something, is it true that something comes into existence from something else, but uncaused? Is there any scientific basis on which we could conclude that there is no efficient cause that brings these virtual particles into existence? No. The claim that virtual particles are uncaused isn't a scientific claim. Scientists could never test that claim. Now, you could always have a case where scientists may not be able to identify what a cause may be for something, so even something such as virtual particles, but it would be a mistake in reasoning to conclude that because they haven't found what the cause would be, that therefore there is no cause. Being unaware of what the cause may be doesn't mean that there is no cause. Ignorance is not an explanation, and it's a basic principle that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Just because I don't have any evidence to say what the cause is doesn't mean that that's evidence that there is no cause. I think the most important thing to grasp here is that science could never, even in principle, ever identify an an uncaused effect if there were such things as uncaused effects science could never know that they could say here's an effect for which we don't know what the cause is but their ignorance of a cause does not prove that there is no cause even if even if in fact there is no cause just their absence of knowledge of what a cause may be does not mean there is no cause so it would never be reasonable to conclude on the basis of science that there is something that exists for which there is no cause. Now, why is that? Because science contributes to our knowledge of reality by making observations about physical things. If they're able to directly or indirectly observe some X, then we have good grounds for adding X to our knowledge. For example, when scientists detect a new particle. Uh, such as the neutrino, then we add neutrinos to our list of things that we say exist. Now, while science can identify what what does exist by what it does observe, science can never identify what does not exist by what it fails to observe. It's very important to get that point. It can confirm that something exists by observing it. But by failing to observe something, that does not confirm that that thing does not exist. At best, it could just mean they have failed to observe the thing. So science can never identify what doesn't exist by simply identifying what it fails to observe. So if science cannot identify what does not exist by what it fails to observe, then the failure to observe a particular cause, in the case of Uh, particle pair production, does not in itself mean that there is no cause. Imagine for a moment that you have a scientist, and he's barbecuing some steaks in his backyard, and while he's cooking, a piece of chicken just suddenly appears on the grill. And strangely enough, it just appears for a brief moment before it disappears again, almost like where he thinks he might have just been seeing things. But this happens multiple times. So quickly, the scientist grabs his instruments and comes over to the barbecue and hopes that he might be able to detect what is causing this chicken to just briefly appear on his grill and then disappear once again. But despite all of his attempts to detect the cause, he uses all his various equipment, he never finds a cause. Does this mean there is no cause? No, it just means he failed to detect what the cause is. Now, perhaps the cause is too small. Perhaps it operates too quickly and can't be detected by his instruments. We don't know why he's not able to detect it. But he can't rule out the possibility that there was a cause for the chicken's sudden appearance. In fact, given the fact that everything else we're familiar with has a cause, we would assume that a cause is present, but simply unknown to us. Now, is it possible that there was no cause? Sure, that's also possible. But a scientist could not claim to know that there is no cause simply because he failed to detect any cause or observe any cause. Likewise, while scientists do not detect a cause for the appearance of these virtual particles in the quantum vacuum... The absence of evidence for a cause is not itself evidence for the absence of a cause. It's simply beyond the scope of the scientific method to make conclusions about what does not exist. So, even if there were such a thing as an uncaused entity, it would be impossible to ever identify it scientifically because science works on observation and induction, and it's impossible to observe the absence of something. If science works on observation, you can't observe the absence of something, and therefore it's impossible to ever discover an uncaused entity by scientific methods. If there is indeed something that is uncaused, then we would have to know it through some sort of philosophical means. We would not be able to find it through scientific means. Another problem with this objection is that it assumes that virtual particles, virtual particle pair production, is analogous to the coming into being of the universe. Now, obviously, we've already shown it's not analogous in the sense that virtual particles aren't coming into being out of nothing. They're coming into into being out of something. Um, But prior to the beginning of the universe, there was no quantum vacuum. So if virtual particles come into existence from a quantum vacuum... But the universe does not, then in what way are virtual particles supposed to be analogous to the coming into being of the universe itself? There was no quanta before the origin of physical reality. Quantum mechanics itself only applies once physical reality comes into being. So, applying some example of a quantum phenomenon within physical reality and thinking that's analogous to the coming into being a physical reality itself just does not follow. That's why philosopher of science Robert Deltet says, quote, there is no basis in ordinary quantum theory for the claim that the universe itself is uncaused, much less for the claim that it sprang into being uncaused from literally nothing. Another problem with this objection is that what is possible for particles may not be possible for macroscopic objects. And what is possible on the small scale may not be possible on the large scale. So even if we agreed that quantum events like virtual particle pair production were uncaused, there's no reason to think that this means that the same thing is possible for large objects like the universe. Now, theoretically, you might say it's possible, um, but we would never expect something like a dog to spontaneously come into being and then spontaneously go out of being because that would require an enormous number of improbable quantum events all occurring simultaneously. You'd have to have them all happening in the same location of the quantum vacuum and a precise arrangement, et cetera. So even a large object within the existing universe is virtually impossible to come into existence uh, without a cause um, or from nothing because of the sheer size of it. A virtual pair of particles is very small. Um, So there's no reason to think that the way that matter behaves at the quantum level applies to the way that matter behaves at the macroscopic level. So there's no reason to think that the universe could be the result of quantum fluctuations or that the universe is uncaused. If the universe did not come from a quantum vacuum, then particle pair production in the quantum vacuum is not analogous to the coming into being of the universe itself. I think also this objection just grasps at straws. I mean, the mere possibility of uncaused events based on, you know, some speculative physics. That's not enough to override our basic uh, metaphysical intuitions that being can only come from being and that effects need causes. And these are intuitions that, like I said, undergird all of science. So why should the universe be the one exception? I don't see any reason to prefer an uncaused universe to a caused one unless you are already starting with a predisposition to materialism and you have a bias against theism otherwise i think theism is clearly the more rational of the two options that the universe came into being from a cause from a personal agent etc so this objection really is grasping at straws and the last thing i'll say about this objection is a word of clarification The first premise of the Kalam argument actually does not require that we think virtual particles have a cause. Uh, The first premise would permit uncaused events, because the first premise does not hold that every event has a cause, but rather everything that comes into being has a cause. So one could see that quantum events might be causally indeterminate, and yet still the first premise would hold true uh, that everything that comes into being requires a cause, because events are not things that come into being. So that's also a possibility. But again, I would argue that there is no scientific basis on which to conclude that virtual particle pair production or any other quantum events are uncaused events. We may not be aware what those causes are, but I think there's good reason to believe that there is some sort of underlying cause based on what we know about the uh, universality of the causal principle. All right, objection number seven. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle of quantum mechanics shows that things can be uncaused. Well, this is just a misunderstanding of what the uncertainty principle pertains to. The uncertainty principle is about predictability. In other words, it's the predictability of a subatomic particle's location or its momentum. It's not about causality. The mere fact that we can't predict something doesn't mean that it doesn't have a cause. As I noted in response to uh, previous objection, the failure to detect a cause does not mean that there is no cause. So this just misunderstands Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. He's only talking about the predictability of something. He's not saying whether or not it has a cause. It's just our ability to predict what the effect will be. It's not saying that there is no cause um, for that effect. Objection number eight, the indeterminate nature of radioactive decay shows that some things are uncaused. George Mason University physicist Robert Orator provides a great example of this objection. Here's what he says. Over the last hundred years, physicists have discovered systems that change from one state to another without any apparent physical trigger. These systems are described by quantum mechanics. The simplest such system is the hydrogen atom. It's just an electron bound to a proton, two particles. That's about as simple as you can get. According to quantum mechanics, the electron can occupy one of a discrete set of energy levels. The electron can be excited to a higher energy level by absorbing a photon. When the electron drops from a higher energy level to a lower level, it emits a photon, a quantum of light. Quantum mechanics describes this process beautifully, but it only predicts the average time the electron will stay in the higher energy level. It doesn't give any clue as to the specific time the electron will drop to the lower level. More precisely, the transition rate, which is the probability of a transition per unit time, is constant. It doesn't matter how long it has been since the atom was excited. The transition rate stays the same. And when you first encounter this, you can't quite wrap your brain around it. Surely there must be some internal mechanism, some kind of clock that ticks along and finally goes off, causing the transition. But no such mechanism has ever been found. Quantum mechanics has had an unexcelled record of accurate predictions without any need for such a mechanism. So because we cannot predict exactly when there'll be radioactive decay then that means there must be no cause to it. Now, philosopher Edward Fezzer specifically responded to Orator um, by noting this, and I'm gonna have a lengthy quotations here of Fezzer. He says, none of this is even a prima facie counterexample to the principle of causality. From one, quantum mechanics describes the transition of the electron without making reference to a cause. It simply doesn't follow that 2. quantum mechanics shows that the transition of the electron has no cause. Such an inference would be no better than 3. Kepler's laws describe the orbits of the planets without making reference to any cause of those orbits. So 4. Kepler's laws show that the orbits of the planets have no cause. Even if for some reason you think that the orbits have no cause, Kepler's laws give you no reason to doubt that they have one. And even if you think the transition of the electron has no qu- cause, quantum mechanics gives you no reason to doubt that it does. And again, Fezzer says, what's really going, uh, doing the work is the ton of philosophical baggage that the critics unreflectively bring to bear on the subject the assumptions they read into the physics and then read back out again, thinking they've raised a scientific objection, when what they've really done is raised a question-begging philosophical objection disguised as a scientific objection. They are essentially making a metaphysics out of physics, Only physics can tell us anything about the nature of physical reality, so the critic supposes. So any claim about the nature of physical reality is implicitly, even if not explicitly, a claim of physics. As we will see below, this cannot possibly be right. Physics cannot even, in principle, tell us everything there is to know about physical reality, let alone reality more generally. For it is also simply false to say that quantum mechanics has undermined the principle of causality. It is then no such thing. The most that one can say is that some people have been led by their metaphysical speculations about quantum mechanics to wonder whether metaphysics might be rewritten in a way that does without the principle of causality." But metaphysicians who have independent grounds to think that the principle of causality cannot be false have no reason to take these speculations very seriously or to respond in detail to them when going about their ordinary work. End quote. So quantum mechanics has not identified causeless effects or invalidated the causal principle. This is just trying to get mileage out of quantum mechanics that it simply does not possess. Any event, if it's going to occur, must first have a potential to occur. And then that potential has to be actualized. And if that potential is actualized, well, then it has to be actualized by something that is already itself actual. And whatever that thing is, that's what we call the cause. So when it comes to radioactive decay, it occurs because some atoms contain either too many or too few neutrons compared to the number of protons. And although we cannot predict exactly when any particular atom will decay, we can predict very accurately the average rate of decay for any macroscopic sample, such as atoms. So this gives us good reason to think that there is a natural cause for this effect, even if we don't fully uh, understand what that cause is. All right, objection number nine. It looks like we are going to get through the rest of the objections today. We got two more to go through, objection nine and objection 10. Objection number nine says that David Hume destroyed all causal arguments. David Hume is a philosopher and some have interpreted David Hume to have shown that uh, causation is somehow unjustified. But Hume's criticisms of causation, he did have criticisms, but they were concerned with our ability to identify causes. In other words, it was an epistemological concern. He wasn't debating whether or not there were such things as causes, that's an ontological concern. So he's concerned with how we identify a cause. He was not saying that there's not good grounds for believing that there are causes. In fact, he himself clarified his position by saying, quote, I have never asserted so absurd a proposition as that anything might arise without a cause. I only maintained that our certainty of the falsehood of that proposition proceeded neither from intuition nor demonstration, but from another source." So one can't cite David Hume as somehow uh, undermining, you know, the law of causality. He did no such thing. At best, he gave uh, skeptical reasons for doubting that we're able to identify what those causes are. All right. And finally, objection number 10, the last objection to premise one, it doesn't make any sense to speak of efficient causation in the absence of material causation. We have experience of agents acting on one physical object to transform it into another physical object. So that's an example of efficient causation on material causation. But in the case of creation, there is no material cause for an efficient cause to act on. So how is it even intelligible to speak of God bringing the universe into being from nothing? How can God act on nothingness in such a way as to bring about something? So this objection would say that there's, it just doesn't make any sense because how can you have efficient causation if there's no material to act on? And specifically, how could God act on nothingness in order to bring about something? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Well, I agree, it is indeed hard to conceive of an effect without a material cause. But I think it's even harder to conceive of there being an effect without either a material or an efficient cause. I mean, if it's hard to believe that you can have an efficient cause without a material cause— if it's hard to see how one thing can produce another without some material to work with to bring about that effect, then how much more unbelievable ought it to be for us to think that something can come into being without any cause at all, neither a, a material cause nor an efficient cause. And yet this is what the philosophical naturalist or the atheist has to maintain. They have to maintain that the universe literally came into being entirely uncaused from nothing at all. So at least on theism, we have an efficient cause of the universe, God. On atheism or naturalism, there's no material cause nor an efficient cause. And I think that's why theism is the more reasonable uh, position to take. Because at least on theism, we have an efficient cause. Now, what about the claim that... It's you know absurd to imagine that there could be an efficient cause without a material cause. Is that true? I'll admit that on its face, it seems like that's true because, again, most everything we're familiar with is an example of one form of matter changing into another form. We always have a material cause. So there's a material cause and an efficient cause. The efficient cause works with the material to bring about the effect. But it's actually not unparalleled. We do have examples of efficient causes bringing things into being without a material cause. William Lane Craig cites a number of examples where efficient causation alone produces an effect. So quoting Craig here, he says, why think that efficient causation without material causation is impossible? There has to be some sort of cause of the thing that begins, but there's no reason to think it must be a material cause. While our normal experience of efficient causes sees them acting in tandem with material causes, why think that this common concatenation must always be the case? I mean, Craig loves to use those big words, concatenation. Uh, Perhaps it would be helpful here to think of cases where we could have efficient causation without material causation. I've been working heavily on the topic of abstract objects like numbers, sets, propositions, and so on. Many philosophers believe that these immaterial objects exist necessarily and eternally. But there are many abstract objects which seem to exist contingently and non-eternally. For example, the equator, the center of mass of the solar system. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, Karenina, and so forth. None of these is a physical object. Tolstoy's novel, for example, is not identical to any of its printed exemplars, for these could all be destroyed and replaced by new books. Nor can Beethoven's Fifth be identified with any particular series of ink marks or any performance of the symphony. Now, these things all began to exist. The equator, for example, didn't exist before the earth did, But if they began to exist, did they have a cause or did they come into being out of just nothing? And he has a parenthetical statement saying, Notice that it makes sense to ask this question, even though these entities are immaterial and so have no material cause. Many philosophers would say that they did indeed have a cause. It was Tolstoy, for example, who created Anna Karenina. So in cases such as these, and they are legion, we do indeed have instances of efficient causation without material causation. You may not agree that such such abstract objects really exist, but I think we have to say that the view defended by our philosophical colleagues is a coherent one. So he's pointing to examples where, you know, a novel, Think about uh, Marvel characters. Think about Star Wars. These stories, these characters, they did not exist anywhere in the physical world. And they came into being by an efficient cause, a mind. But did they have any material exemplars? No, they existed in the mind. Now you can transfer those thoughts onto a material object, but the creation of those uh ideas of the novels of the music that began in the mind, so those are examples of efficient causes producing effects without any sort of material cause that's involved in the creation. so I it is I think logically coherent, and we have exact uh, examples where uh, we you know see efficient causes bringing about effects without material causes. And there you have it. We've gotten through all 10 objections to the first premise of the Kalam argument. So we've shown the support for the first premise and looked at all of the objections to the first premise and found uh, all the objections wanting. So I think it's safe to say at this point, we have firmly established premise one of the Kalam cosmological argument. Anything that begins to exist requires an external cause. So now we will be turning our attention to premise two of the Kalam cosmological argument, the premise that says the universe had a beginning. So next episode, we'll pick up looking at the support for premise two. I'll divide that support between the scientific evidence uh, as well as the philosophical evidence. So we'll start with the scientific evidence next time for how it is that we know the universe had a beginning. To read my latest thoughts, visit the Thinking to Believe blog at thinkingtobelieve.com. Or if you'd like to comment on today's podcast, you can do so at the Thinking to Believe Facebook page. You can also send me any questions you might have at thinkingtobelieve at gmail.com. Until next time, keep thinking to believe.